Before the 1984 election, Ronald Reagan was 73 years old. At that time, he was already the oldest president in American history. And age seemed to be a very potential issue for voters in this re-election campaign. During the first debate with his opponent, Walter Mondale, who was only 56, a former vice president, former two-term U.S. senator, Ronald Reagan, during the first debate, lost focus, seemed confused, and stumbled over his words quite often. After that first debate, the media made much of his age, and Reagan's large lead over Mondale in the polls began to narrow. As the second debate occur, uh, uh, began to, uh, as the second debate ensued, a moderator asked Ronald Reagan whether his age should be an issue in the campaign. And Reagan famously replied, I will not make age an issue of this campaign. I am not going to exploit, for political purposes, my opponent's youth and inexperience. (laughs) The audience laughed, as you did. Even his opponent, Walter Mondale, laughed. The media eagerly replayed and reprinted the joke. Ronald Reagan won in November in a landslide re-election. It's different today but we still talk about mic drops. Our favorite movie characters have the witty comebacks. They get the last word. We don't sit around and listen to orators as they did in this day, people who would be full of rhetoric. Because our orators take the form of Twitter, TikTok, YouTube, talking heads on TV, Facebook reels. We don't have the patience for long and drawn-out speeches. We get our stuff in sound bites. But they still shape us. I'm talking about this this morning because we might miss the cultural relevance of the text this morning if we don't connect the experience of the Corinthian believers with something similar in our lives. Now, the Corinthians thought they were wise. They had come to value human wisdom. This human wisdom and this pompous arrogance was contributing to the divisions that existed in the church. But Paul knew that the human wisdom that they valued contradicted the gospel. As a result, the Corinthians were not wise, they were foolish. Christians today sometimes make the same mistakes as the Corinthians did. We think we are wise because we know what the world says. What the world says we should know. Because we're able to think the way the world thinks, the way the world has taught us to think. But if the wisdom that we embrace differs from God's wisdom, we are not really wise. We are as foolish as the Corinthians were in their day. As we approach this text, I'm going to read it one more time because it's short. Turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 if you haven't already. And Paul said, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. 
For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I, I was with you in weakness and in fear and in trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Why? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I'm often, as I'm approaching a text, the first thing I do on a Monday morning is write out questions. I'm not the smartest guy. I have to do a lot of research. And I, I, but I also try to think of it from a fresh eyes standpoint. And here are a few questions that occurred to me as I read the text and I began my study. Number one, what makes the message of the gospel foolish in the world's eyes? Huh? We think of the gospel as this great thing, but Paul describes it as foolishness to the world. I think that's something that's important for us to understand. Even deeper than that, and I'm not sure that, I, uh, that we're going to cover this this morning. Pastor Brian will next week. Why did God ordain a gospel that the world would find foolish? And that's a reasonable question to ask. And if everyone thinks the gospel is foolish, how does anyone come to be saved? How do you think this portion of Paul's letter relates to the flow of the thought of what we've been preaching and what will come next? What's the flow of his argument? Well, let me just bridge that for you and then we'll dive into the text. Paul's addressing these divisions in the church, how to combat them. And he's appealed to this idea earlier in chapter 1. He said, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Sound similar? Very similar. And he summarized his rebuke to the Corinthians with this comparison in 125. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That's what I said to you last week, that the cross has turned the value system of the world upside down. Do you feel it? And we have to embrace it. And then last week, Paul directed his attention at the Corinthian believers themselves and instructed them not to boast in themselves, but to boast in the Lord, because as he said, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards, and not many were powerful, and not many of you were nobly born. And God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, what is weak in the world to shame the strong, and what is low and despised, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things the world thinks are important, so that no one might boast in the presence of God. But this morning, Paul turns his gaze away from the congregation, as it were, and begins to speak directly about his own teaching ministry to the Corinthians. If I were going to oversimplify this just a little bit, to help you understand it, and admittedly, this would be a little oversimplified. For us at Heather Hills, it would be like this. Last week's message was about you, and this week's message is about your preachers and teachers. And our main idea here this morning, what we need more than anything else, is to understand that God's saving power does not come through human personality. It comes by heaven's power. God's saving power does not come through human personality. It comes by heaven's power. 
All right, let's take a look at the text here. and There's a few things that we ought to be able to understand here. I already said Christianity is fundamentally opposed to the world's beliefs, the world's values, the world's standards, period. What the world thinks is important, Jesus does not. God has chosen the people whom the world considers weak and foolish. And yet somehow the gospel is divinely powerful to save the lost without resorting to human personality and arguments from worldly wisdom. Verse 1, Paul speaks of himself. This is kind of autobiographical. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Well, of course, this verse connects to Paul's disavowal of words of eloquent wisdom that I just read to you in chapter 1, verse 17. Paul calls the Corinthian believers and reminds them that he had first come to them preaching, not with the eloquence or the superior wisdom that was common in their day from their public orators. He affirms that he had fulfilled this divine design. Now, there were those who con who divided the Corinthian church on the basis of human arrogance, on the basis of their ability to speech. Do you remember the examples? And Paul says, I simply came to you and announced a testimony about God, a testimony of what God had done in Christ. In Paul's view, to preach the gospel was to make plain what God has done, sending his son into the world. And in the same way that if Paul had, if God had called many wise, many noble, many rich, many high-born, then those people might have said, I know why the church is effective. Because of the people God called. In the same way, if Paul had presented the gospel eloquently and with the sophistication of that day, converts might have been swayed by his rhetoric. And his embrace of what they would have called in that day sophistry, wisdom, and not by the Holy Spirit. He goes on in verses 2 through 4 and says, defines it a little more for us. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this autobiographical flavor just continues i was with you in weakness and fear and but i'm not sure i wanted paul. you feel this i'm i'm not sure i would have enjoyed listening to paul <laughs> and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom but in demonstration of the spirit and of power now let me say this in one sense i don't know what he's talking about because i in in reading paul's letters <laughs> This dude is eloquent. He is learned, yes? He is not ignorant. So it's not simply that. I mean, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14 is one sentence. But Paul here is trying to get a little deeper into our hearts. He, he offers three proofs supporting his 
statement in summarizing these verses. He says, number one, my sole message was a crucified Messiah, which was different than the wisdom preachers of the day because they were trying to bring something else to it. Secondly, Paul's physical presence seems to be very unimpressive. Not like the wisdom sophist, the, 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 the rhetoric, the, the, the orators of his day who would dress impressively. Paul had no swag. Weakness probably refers to the kinds of hardships that Paul recounts in chapter 4. We have not gotten there yet. But he says, to the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed, buffeted, homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the garbage of all things. Or maybe he's referring to his physical illness. Some thorn in the flesh. Second Corinthians And Paul, writing to this same church, they say of him, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. (laughs) And his speech of no account. Thank you for never saying that about me, by the way. (laughs) And thirdly, the style and content of Paul's speech, he describes as unimpressive. Now, I don't know about you, but when I'm at college, I got to pick my classes, electives they're called. I never picked an elective based on the title of the class. I picked it based on the name of the professor. But Paul's style and speech was unimpressive, not like the public orators. The power of the public orators was in themselves, the sophists, the wisdom guys, the wise guys. The power of Paul's preaching, he understood to be in the spirit. Paul's style, his content, proved the spirit's power. The evidence of this was in the converted Corinthians themselves. If it was this bad, why did they keep coming? And yet there they were, saved and redeemed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, a little bit more explaining. Verse 2, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul explained how he avoided human wisdom and sophistication as he preaches in Corinth. He had decided, he had determined that the most important thing was Jesus Christ. Jesus would be the center of his teaching while at Corinth. He did not involve himself in the practices of the other orators that were so prevalent in the cities in Greece. He emphasized the simplicity of his message by adding, and him crucified. The crucifixion is the way to salvation. We've been talking about this for several weeks. Is the most offensive dimension of the gospel. It opposes the human arrogance of Jews and Gentiles. But as Paul said in Romans 1.17, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And Paul personalizes this recollection of the Corinthians by the phrase, while I was with you. The Corinthian church could not deny, even though Paul was unimpressive and weak, that Christ 
had come to them through the gospel that was not relying on human wisdom. He continues in verse 3, And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And Paul continues to focus on the manner of his prior ministry in Corinth. He'd come in this weakness and fear and trembling. In all likelihood, the weakness with which he spoke of was his physical ailments. He had suffered much physical abuse because of his faith in Christ. Just read the book of 2 Corinthians. He also had difficulties with his sight. We learn about that alluded to in Galatians chapter 6. And he might have had other illnesses. In fact, his testimony in 2 Corinthians 12 he writes this, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. And three times I pleaded with the Lord that it should leave me. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, I am strong. The apostle had not come to Corinth asserting himself with human strength and eloquence. As the divisions in the Corinthian church already existed, Paul would have simply added to it. He'd come as a weak person. And in his weakness, he'd brought the wisdom of God. Paul also come to Corinth after being beaten and imprisoned in Philippi, run out of Thessalonica and Berea, scoffed at in Athens. So when he says he comes to them physically weak, he was run down. But somehow in his weakness... He was the most powerful. There were no theatrics, no techniques to manipulate people's responses. His fear and his shaking were because of the seriousness of the message and the seriousness of his mission. In verse 4, he finishes and says, And my speech and message weren't in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul's proclamation of the gospel at Corinth had been the same with his physical and emotional state. He didn't preach with wise and persuasive words. It was common in the Greek cities of that day for philosophers and pagan religious leaders to gather followers through this type of powerful speech. Paul's human weakness made it evident that he had relied on the demonstration of the Spirit's power. The term demonstration is a legal term. It's a technical term describing irrefutable evidence offered in court. Sounds a lot like the way Paul spoke in the book of Acts. And Paul's preaching had the support of the Holy Spirit's transforming power in the lives of his hearers. Again, I keep going back and forth here. And I think about, it's so hard for me not to think about our preaching here at Heather Hills while I'm talking about this. Could you feel that? Could you feel that while I'm preparing, I'm thinking, is this what I do? And I'd like to think that Brian and I and Greg aren't boring or hard to listen to. But I have to train myself through this text that you come back for the feeding from the God of heaven and the Spirit of Christ. 
And that is why you come to hear of Jesus. And maybe even though Paul's preaching lacks sophistication and human wisdom, the fact that the Spirit kept showing up and showed himself through the preaching proves it did not lack power. And the fact that we persevere shows that the Spirit does not lack power. Listen to how Paul declared Christ in court. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but I declared it first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God and perform deeds in keeping with their repentance. And for this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. And to this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to the small and the great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that being the first to rise from the dead would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. This was the message of Paul. And last week, he was very kind to tell us why, and it was about the boasting, and it's not a very different why here. Verse 5, so that... Okay, so why did Paul come to Corinth in this matter? So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now that sounds very simplistic at the ver- uh, just on the face of it, but think about that. Where do you want your faith to rest? In the wisdom of men? Or in the power? He came with the message of the cross. Relying on the Spirit so that our faith might not rest in wisdom of man. Greek culture tended to rely on the worldly wisdom, its philosophers, its public speakers. And again, the whole context here of divisions in the church, the Corinthian believers had begun to return to this way of thinking. And they were exerting themselves in the church through human wisdom. And in response, Paul points out that from the very beginning, his central goal in his earliest preaching, at the time when God founded the church through the ministry of this apostle, that they would build their lives on a new foundation, a different foundation, a better foundation, not on the wisdom of men, but on God's power, the power of the gospel brought through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This was the foundation of the Corinthians' Christian faith. If you were looking at the text in broad things, you would see, not with wisdom. Not with wisdom. Might not rest in wisdom. He says it three times. There's a great contrast there. Well, so what for us? Well, I tried to bring out the element of contrast here in Paul's text by talking about the difference between human personality and heaven's power. Paul goes back and forth. I did this, not this. I didn't do this, I did this. I didn't do There was this contrast in the text. And that's what I want to finish with this morning. More of application points. I have two of them. How do we avoid foolish reliance on human personality. 
How do we avoid foolish reliance on human personality? You know, a little bit of that is uh, maybe wrapped up in how do you listen to a sermon? (laughs) How do you judge a sermon? You come every week and listen to this preaching. What are you looking for? When you walk away, how do you decide, was that a good sermon or a bad sermon? Well, I know we need to adjust our standards and values to match God's, not the world's, right? So simplistic things like, well, I liked it. That was easy to listen to. He encouraged me. I felt like I got some help for something I'm dealing with. None of those are bad things. They can't be the most fundamental things. Christ crucified. Nothing but. The second thought of that, I'm going to talk about both of these things kind of together, but how do we embrace the faithful reality of heaven's power? If there's the foolish reliance on human personality then there's some kind of reality of heaven's power. And that would turn the spotlight up to me. Well, how do you preach a sermon? How do you teach a Sunday school class? What are you trying to accomplish? No matter what the world says about our Christian beliefs, we can rest assured that the gospel of Jesus is true. It is Jesus that makes us a church. He is the hero of the scriptures. All of them. God forbid if I were to preach a sermon that would be well received for its helpfulness at a synagogue or a mosque or in the public square. We preach Christ crucified, the hope for sinners. David is not the hero of the David narrative. Jonah is not the hero of the Jonah story. Noah is not fundamentally the reason we're all still alive here today. Listen to the words of Jesus about this from John chapter 5. It's a little bit of a long quote, 10 verses. Listen to the words of Jesus. And the Father who sent me has borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, and you don't have his word living in you because you don't believe the one whom he sent. Jesus speaking of himself, speaking to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, and it is them that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I don't receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I've come in my Father's name, and you don't receive me. If another comes in his own name, you receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you'd believe me, for he wrote of me. And if you don't believe his writings, how will you believe my word? 
Jesus said the hero of the Adam and Eve story is Jesus. Moses wrote that. Jesus said the hero of the Cain and Abel story is Jesus. Jesus said the hero of the Noah story is Jesus. Jesus said the hero of the Abraham and Isaac and Jacob story and the Joseph story and the Exodus and the Temple Mount and Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments and the sacrificial system and the, and the, uh, the Deuteronomy arrangement and covenant between God and his people, that the point of all of that was him. We preach Christ crucified and nothing else. Moses spoke of him. We should proclaim the gospel in a simple and straightforward manner, trusting in God's power to convert the lost. Charles Spurgeon famously is uh, reported, a great preacher, that every time he walked the platform, he had steps to come up to his church in England to preach. I think a few more than three. With every step, he is famously reported to have said to himself, I believe in the Holy Spirit. 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 And that shapes me. If I can be a little vulnerable and transparent for you here this morning, there are times I come up here to preach and I think, I got a good one. I got a good one. Study came easy. It's witty. It's strong. You know what I mean. I better hit every step. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Because the gospel does not rest. The wisdom of men. I guess what the opposite's true sometimes. I'm sitting down there going, oh man, I got to get up there. I don't got a good one. I got a weak one. Study came hard. It's wooden. It's labored. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. It's not my work. And if parenting has taught me anything, I know that I can't change the hearts of anybody. (laughs) So if I can't change the hearts of my own children, I know this is the Spirit's work. I'm going to invite our um, praise team to turn to the platform and our um, deacons if they begin to prepare for the Lord's table. And we'll celebrate that together here as I finish up these last couple paragraphs. Well, how about that, Greg? Seven pages, and I'm five minutes early. That's not bad, right? You never know. It is foolish to rely on charisma, winsomeness, clever messaging. This is not what saves people. Similarly, it is unwise to rely on communicating in the most culturally charming way to win people over, especially if these methods trivialize the message of a crucified Messiah and increase the speaker's prestige. What saves people is not a persuasive style of speaking, or other market-driven strategies. What saves people 
is the Spirit's power, which people experience when God's servants proclaim a crucified Messiah. Not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. Zechariah 4, 6, you hear the echo. No one can exalt himself and exalt Christ at the same time. No man can give the impression that he himself is clever and that Christ is mighty to save at the same time. In response to this, our hearts should cry out, Lord Jesus, you have shown us your wisdom is contrary to the wisdom of the world. And Father, forgive us when we harm ourselves, when we harm your church by following the standards of this world. Give us hearts that see clearly the great divide between God's wisdom and the foolishness of being like-minded with a sinful world. The Corinthians had fallen into the trap of being wise guys instead of wise people. They relied on human personalities to compete with fellow believers in the church. The wisdom of God, upon which the Corinthians had placed their hope, opposed this wisdom. And we ought to oppose it as well. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. Father, may your word go deep into our hearts and grow a great harvest. In Jesus' name, amen.